Welcome to Mortals. A podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kirkens. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about death in space. This episode contains mention of suicide, cannibalism, accidental and vehicular fatalities, and of course, death. Now let's get on to the show! Alright, my dear friends, when I say death in space, is there anything that immediately jumps to mind? Star Trek. But I'm also watching The Next Generation right now, so that might be why. (laughs) Spending eternity in the void. (laughs) Well, that's definitely a mood as well. And, I mean, for me, the thing that always comes to mind is the Magic School Bus episode where they went to Pluto. And Arthur got so mad at Janet that he took Ah. off his helmet and his whole head turned into ice. That traumatized me as a child. Yeah. (laughs) So mad at that kid. Right? God damn it, Arthur. Fucking Arthur. Arthur. Arnold. I'm pretty sure his name was Ar- oh, Arnold. Oh, Arthur Arnold. They kind of occupy the same social space in terms of cartoon characters. Don't they both <laughs> wear, like, yellow sweatshirts, too? I think so. I think they're both kind of persnickety, glasses-wearings, do-gooders. I don't know. It's been a while since I watched these cartoons. But, as we can see, there's a variety of things that come to mind. And aside from, aside from the perpetuity of the void, <laughs> it's more or less fiction-derived. But there is actually quite a history to dying in space. And we're going to do a quick brief history of it, going back to the good old Cold War and the space race. And we're going to talk about current conditions for dying in space and the future, which of course is going to be mostly hypothetical and based on um, various projections going around. But of course, we don't know what the future holds. Gotta love that Cold War. Gotta love that cold, cold, frosty war. All right, so looking back at humans in space, do you guys know where space starts? How uh, far from the Earth do you think space, outer space, starts? I ain't no scientist. But, like, <laughs> isn't space, like, all around us, man? Aren't we space? <laughs> Don't we all just occupy space? Do I not contain multitudes, Mariah? Potentially you do, but hopefully you do not contain terribly many dead astronauts. That's what you think. Oh, oh! you have so many spicy death-related secrets. (laughs) But for the purposes of this episode, we're going to be using the Kármán line, which is generally agreed upon by most space agencies, NASA being the exception. They set the line for crossing into outer space as 80 kilometers versus the Kármán line, which is 100 kilometers. Interesting. Yeah, so the Kármán line is set that way for aeronautical and aviation reasons that I don't totally understand. I'm not great at science, I'm not great at math, but from what I understand, it's the point in the altitude at which aeronautic rules that keep a plane up start to fail. So it's kind of where you're hitting the limits of aviation. NASA sets it at 80 kilometers, so they do have some people who are classified as astronauts, quote-unquote, simply because they have left the Earth's 
atmosphere. They've so, entered outer space. So are we talking 100 kilometers from like where from I'm currently sitting on my living room floor, like straight up? <laughs> or are we talking like sea level or? Well, if your floor is equal with sea level, then yes, 100 kilometers up from where you are. And if cool. not, slightly less, cool, provided cool. you're not underwater. <laughs> not that I'm aware yes. of. <laughs> So there's been a, a fair number of astronaut deaths that have been space flight related, but have not been deaths in outer space, which is specifically what we are talking about. But to talk about human deaths in space, we got to talk briefly about the first human in space. Do either of you know offhand who was the first human to pass the Kármán line? Uh, I want to say Armstrong, but I know that's not true. Or like Buzz Aldrin. I think it was a Russian. Yeah. Or a Soviet, yeah. should I say. Yeah, so it was a Soviet cosmonaut, and his name was Yuri Gagarin. I apologize to any Russians out there, I'm going to butcher a lot of Russian names today. So when he was 27, he completed one full orbit of the Earth in the Vostok 1 spacecraft, and that took place on April 12th, 1961. And it marked the beginning of the space age. His whole wow, that was, was almost exactly 60 years ago. Yeah, and actually a lot of the dates in here are going to line up pretty close to where we are now. We're recording this on March 28th, and a lot of these are like March-April dates. It's pretty funky, actually, and we're recording this on the day of a supermoon. What the oh, supermoon? is it? I don't know what that is. A supermoon is where, um, due to the fluctuations in orbit around us, the moon actually is slightly closer to the Earth than usual and appears ginormous in the sky. Weird. I like yeah. the moon. The moon's my friend. <laughs> the moon is very cool. Have you ever watched uh, The Mighty Boosh? And the whole, I'm the moon! And it's just I Noel Fielding wearing, like, but cream on his face. <laughs> I, I say that I've seen that. I don't know anything about space, so I'm just gonna, like, jump in with the sides, like, hey, have you ever seen that one episode of Star Trek? Hey, have you ever watched Star Wars? Hey, like, <laughs> that is my that is my input for this episode, so I apologize in advance. No, that's totally fair, because Star Trek is going to come up, yes! specifically Spock's send-off, and what they do with Spock. When he I'm dies, and uh, I forget what the movie's called, but... Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Truth be told, I have not watched very much Star Trek. <gasps> I know, scandal. How dare. Um, but it will come up later on. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So we've got Yuri Gagarin, who, he passed the 100-kilometer mark. There was actually some controversy about whether he had actually completed a space flight because the FAI, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, which is the governing body of space and orbit related uh, records and kind of rules, they're the ones that maintain the Kármán line, their ruling required that the cosmonaut land in his craft and he actually ejected and came down in a parachuting pod. They later revised the rules to accommodate Gagarin's flight and the significance of him having made a manned orbit around the Earth. Why this is important, aside from being the first human in space, is that he is also tied to the first very tragic record of the first human in-flight death related to space flight. So fast forward a couple of years and he was selected as the backup pilot for his friend Vladimir Komarov on the Soyuz 1 flight. Soyuz 1 flight took off in April of 1967. So this is a number of years after his own flight, after his own touring, after being barred from the US for being too popular. <laughs> but the Soyuz 1 had a lot of problems. 
It was rushed due to political pressure associated with trying to accomplish a series of space feats in time for Lenin's birthday. And unofficially, a certain amount of pressure in the space race against the USA and the Apollo flights and developments and all that fun stuff. So the Soyuz 1 was super rushed, and Gagarin, as well as the engineering team, identified 203 problems with the spacecraft. Holy moly. Right? (laughs) This is quite a lot of problems. Unfortunately, the government decided we're going to fly it one way or another. The initial candidate for it was Yuri Gagarin. However, he had spent a number of years not flying, touring around, and they worried that his ability to fly had deteriorated. He had put on weight. They were worried about his health in orbit. And so instead, they selected Vladimir Komarov. These two were close friends. Apparently, they went hunting together. They drank together. They hung out. They spent a lot of time. And even though Komarov also was like, hey, this is a flying death trap. He was not willing to give up the spot and let Yuri take it because they both knew it was a death trap. And he wasn't willing to let a national hero, who was also his friend, go down in flames like this. So, unfortunately, on April 23rd, another April date, in 1967, Komarov went up in the Soyuz 1 and was immediately struck with issues. There was problems with valves, there was problems with communicators. He tried to eject from the spacecraft, and the parachute did not open on his escape pod. So at 40 years old, he became the first in-flight death in the history of spacecraft. He hit the surface of the Earth at 30 to 40 meters per second. All right, can I... May I be pedantic here? Yeah. Because I don't think he died in space. He obviously went splat on the Earth's surface. Technically, did he die in space? (laughs) This is an important distinction, because no, he did not die in space. He did have a space flight-related death in the first model of the Soyuz rocket, which is going to come up again and again, and also really set the tone for how we manage the expectations of death in space. And we'll see a stark contrast between uh, the Russian government kind of going, well, you're going, whether it kills you or not. And the way that President Nixon was prepared for the potential failure of the 1969 moonwalk. Um, and how attitude has kind of changed, both publicly and politically, about the extreme risks and danger that astronauts are faced up against. Space is an extremely hostile environment. As we know from Arthur Arnold, whatever space is, turning into ice, taking off his helmet on Pluto. <laughs> I knew I should have stayed home today. <laughs> <laughs> Pluto's a planet. albeit a dwarf planet (laughs) yeah so unfortunately that very tragic record did go to Komarov and actually less than a year later Gagarin died March 27th 1968 during a training flight where he and his flight instructor Vladimir Seryogin sorry there's a lot of Vladimirs today uh, they crashed horribly (laughs) into the ground there's lots of conspiracy about their crash there's some people that think that in a combination of bad weather and another jet nearby breaking the sound barrier within 20 kilometers of them causing massive turbulence led to the crash and others think that it was an effort to kill Gagarin because of his popularity he was only 34 years old at the time of his death so dangerous Uh, uh, such a dangerous profession it's a very dangerous profession and actually Gagarin and Komarov have very interesting backstories and how they kind of became cosmonauts. But that's a story for another time. 
Both of them were cremated and interred in the walls of the Kremlin. Fast forwarding a couple of years, the moonwalk. 1969, we're on to Apollo 11. There's been a lot of Apollos so far, but this is the big one. However, this mission's success relied on Aldrin and Armstrong being able to leave the moon and return to the Earth alive. Because of this, President Nixon had a second speech prepared titled, In Event of Moon Disaster. You can find copies of this memo kind of anywhere on the internet. So it was dated July 18th, 1969 from Bill Sapphire, who was the presidential speechwriter. It's only a two-page document, and at the bottom of the address, there are two directives. The first one says, prior to the president's statement, the president should telephone each widow-to-be. The second reads, after the president's statement, a clergyman should adopt the same procedure as a burial at sea, commending their souls to the deepest of the deep and concluding with the Lord's Prayer. So this is in the case of being unable to get their shuttle or their spacecraft off of the surface of the moon. I find it interesting treating it like a burial at sea, uh, but it's in space. I appreciate that. And I think that's neat. It is very much. And I mean, there's the matching of the names too: spaceship. Mm -hmm. Well, that's like, (laughs) I'm space terrifies me. I'm perfectly fine with never going to space or at least like not until it's like a well-traveled tourist route. I'm fine with not going to space, but I do love like Star Wars and Star Trek. And whenever they make the comparison, or at least in Star Trek, to um, previous naval ships and things, like I get a bit giddy because pirates are also my jam. So I don't know. I like I like that crossover. I think it's fun. It is. And it's interesting, too, because the way that we do kind of naval procedures, you know, burial at sea, the fact that we call them ships, the, the very self-contained nature of these vessels is very analogous to the space crafts that we're employing and that'll come up more later on when we talk about the risks that are being studied in terms of deep space travel by nasa but you might be wondering what does this mean for armstrong and aldrin on the moon right what are they supposed to do what's going to happen to them essentially if they can't get off the surface of the moon after the president calls their widows to be which is the worst kind of thing to be Mm. they will be asked by NASA to shut down their communications and they will be marooned essentially on the moon where they can either slowly die due to lack of resources or they can take their own lives. Did they have that thing that pirates give people that they maroon like the the, the pistol the, with the single the one bullet? shot? Yeah. <laughs> the flintlock with one pistol. Uh, I Not as far as I can tell I believe their options were decompressing their suits or something mm-hmm. analogous to that. Awful. So you've got a built-in uh, built-in kill switch, I guess. <laughs> Removing your helmet. Like Arnold. Head, like Arnold. Yep. That's pretty dark. It is, it is pretty dark, and it's unfortunate that they were just going to essentially let them make a mausoleum out of the Apollo 11. Be a great museum slash uh, tourist trap in like 100 years. It may not take 100 years, but we'll get there soon. So the last historical event that I want to talk about is the Soyuz 11 tragedy. So here we're getting to actual deaths in outer space. The crew of the Soyuz 11 are the only three people to have died above the Kármán line. 
So the Soyuz 11 was launched in 1971. It was manned by three young men, three young cosmonauts, and their names were Georgi Dobrovolsky, Vladislav Volkov, and Viktor Patsayev. It was the first manned crew to visit the Salyut 1, which was the very first space station orbiting the Earth, which is pretty cool. They stayed on the space station for 22 days. They even put out an electrical fire that popped up on day 11. And then they got back in their ship to head back to Earth. At this time, astronauts were not suited inside their traveling craft, inside of their spacecraft. They were relying on the craft to be pressurized correctly. Kind of like when we're in an airplane. We don't wear spacesuits in an airplane or parachutes because the plane should stay pressurized. <laughs> exactly. There's a, there's a big difference between vacuum and thin atmosphere. Yeah. The crew on the ground waiting to collect the ship and to go and get them lost audio contact basically as soon as they left Salyut 1. The ship was able to land relatively successfully, though it did end up on its side. When the crew got there, banged on the door, there was no response. Because unfortunately, when they opened it, they discovered all three men had died. There was big controversy for a while, people trying to figure out what had happened, what kind of potential failure there had been. And it was later discovered that there was a defective seal that came apart when they detached from Salyut 1 that caused the cabin to depressurize. And so the records state that the three men died at 104 kilometers above sea level, making them the only three people to die in outer space. Terrible historical thing to have be your legacy, but as a result of this, the Soyuz was extensively redesigned as a two-person rocket to accommodate the wearing of spacesuits, which is now pretty common for anybody in a rocket going to space. Mm. Yeah, so they made it, the the craft, should I say, made it all the way back to Earth in yes. one piece, except for the fact that there was a broken seal. So the people inside, you know, the things that you're bringing the thing back to Earth for, the people inside didn't make it. That's pretty brutal. It is quite brutal. And there was a lot of research material and stuff that they had loaded into the ship. So it wasn't a total loss, despite the tragedy. And all three were like Komarov and Gagarin, were cremated and interred in the wall of the Kremlin. I looked up what the Kremlin is, if anyone's curious. I did the same thing. <laughs> if you look up a picture of Moscow or Russia and you see that temple, like the very iconic temple, it's essentially like Tiananmen Square, but for Russia. It's a giant like, oh, citadel. Yeah, that, it kind of serves as, it's the, where the president lives, there's a museum, it's just like a huge fortified that's like a cultural icon yeah in exactly russia yeah still very important to russian culture excellent i'm glad that we know that now so all five cosmonauts were awarded either ahead of time in the case of yuri gagarin or posthumously in the case of the other four the hero of the soviet union distinction what exactly this does I, i'm not totally sure but it sounds like it was a great honor so that brings us kind of through the history of death in space we don't have any bodies in space at the moment, but that will surely be in the future. Currently, though, the most people going in and out of space are going to the International Space Station, the ISS. And this is where we're going to talk about the current kind of regulations, or lack thereof, around what happens if an astronaut dies while on the ISS or traveling to and fro. ISS is a modular space station, so it has multiple parts, um, and it, it is a low-orbit 
space station. It only sits at about 400 to 420 kilometers above sea level. The upper edge of Earth's orbit, or of Earth orbit, is about 2,000 kilometers above sea level. So we're not launching any bodies into deep space anytime soon. And it was built between five different space agencies, NASA from the USA, Roscosmos from Russia, JAXA from Japan, the ESA, which is the European Space Union, and the CSA from Canada. First component was launched in 1998, and the first crew to live there long term uh, arrived November 2nd in 2000, and they stayed for 136 days. The ISS has seen 242 visitors from 19 countries. How many of those do you think are astronauts? All of them? Yeah, what is, what is, oh, an, a, what is an astronaut? Because Elon Musk, well, he rode his car in space. But, um, <laughs> I mean, what? Um, so I imagine I take back my previous answer of all of them. But I would still say, like, 75% are astronauts trained to go to yeah, space. So what's the bar for an astronaut? Is it uh, a job title? Is it the fact that they're in space, like, outside of the Carmen? The Carmen line is what we called it. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's a, a good distinction because NASA does kind of give the title willy-nilly to anybody who leaves the atmosphere. But when we're talking about astronauts on the ISS, we're talking about those given the distinction by a national space agency, the extremely qualified, probably the most qualified people on the face of the planet, um, who have done all the training and who are prepared for anything. Right. So yeah, all so of them except for Elon Musk <laughs> is my guess. Which is not a bad guess, because nine of those people were not public astronauts. But we'll talk about that and space tourism in a hot sack. Sweet. To date, there have been no deaths on the ISS, and astronauts typically stay only about six months at a time. Any longer than that, they don't really know what will happen to the human body, and this is a huge concern for NASA and other space agencies considering deep space travel, traveling to Mars, or going any further than that. Because we really, we don't know what happens to the human body when exposed to zero gravity and other space-related risks over time. Does NASA have a plan, a contingency, for if someone does die? The short answer is no. The long answer naturally, is a little bit more complicated than that. And it's still kind of no, but is also yes. <laughs> NASA may not be prepared, but the astronauts are. So in a Star Talk interview with co-host Chuck Nice, uh, NASA astronaut Mike Massimino says that it wasn't something covered in his training. So the question, verbatim, is there a NASA protocol for bringing back one of your comrades who is deceased in space? And the answer, verbatim, out of all the training I had, we never went over that. We would probably improvise. So Mike Massimo, he's now a professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia, but he was a NASA astronaut for a period of time. And Star Talk is a podcast usually hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, where he does one-on-one -on -one chats with various people. That was the answer given in 2014. Chris Hadfield, who is a Canadian astronaut who has been on the ISS twice, the second time as a commander, he wrote a book called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and he both contradicts and corroborates Massimino's statement. So he describes there being roundtable discussions with the various astronauts on a crew walking through the hypotheticals of absolute worst case scenarios. And he describes how strange it was to listen to the group leader go, 
all right, here's the situation. Chris is dead. What do you do? And throwing various curveballs in. So this is all part of the power of negative thinking, as he describes it, in which by doing these visualizations, by doing these experiments, you learn not to panic when the worst thing happens. Because space is extremely hostile, and one fuck-up can get you killed. And nobody knows that more than an astronaut. So they talked about, you know, who would, who would notify his family? Would it be in person? Would it be by phone? What would they do with the body? Would they put it in a, in a spacesuit and put it in a closet? Or would they, like Spock, burial at sea him and just send him floating off into space? I'm trying to remember my Wrath of Khan. <laughs> I know that happens in Star Trek at least once with Ira Graves, the guy who's trying to possess Data. He gets uh, burial at seed and he's wearing like a weird head cap thing. Oh dear. Because the whole point of the, the next movie is for Spock, for, for like after Wrath of Khan, is that they go and search for Spock. So I just find it funny. It's been many years since I've seen that movie, but just like in the context of this, like, oh yeah, we're going to like bury him at sea, quote unquote, except, oh God, he's still alive. We have to go get him. Just, I haven't seen it in a couple Oops. of years. So that mental image is like hilarious to me. <laughs> right, well, that's part of the thing. So if you bury at sea someone, in the sea, the sea is relatively warm, it's wet, there's oxygen, there's fish, there's other animals. The body eventually will be properly disposed of in that ecosystem. Yeah, your lungs are nature. Yeah, exactly. However, in space, in the vacuum of space, there is neither oxygen nor heat. The body, and this may be conjecture on my part, as I'm not a scientist uh, in any capacity, but the body likely wouldn't really decompose at all. So there's two things that may or may not happen if you burial at sea a body, whether it's in a spacesuit or not. One, it could be sucked back into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up upon entry, which, I mean, cremation by atmosphere is a pretty metal way to go. However, the other option is actually illegal, where a body just gets sucked into orbit and just joins space debris floating around, not decomposing. Could you imagine, like, a thousand years from now, being on the space highway and a corpse from, like, a thousand years ago just hits your windshield and you have to use your windshield wipers to wipe this corpse off? Oh my god. Well, this is one of the concerns, actually. And so the thing that makes it illegal to just kind of burial and see a body in space, and particularly within kind of Earth's orbital zone, is actually a UN agreement. So the agreement itself is called the Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines of the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Is holy cow, a mouthful. This was a document put out in 2010 after a meeting in Vienna, and it has two primary aims, which is to reduce the amount of space debris being caused by intentional ejection of materials from ships, whether they're traveling in or traveling out or just maintaining themselves, and two, to stop the breakup of ships that are already in the atmosphere. There's a lot of decayed ships out in space at the moment. Like satellites um, and stuff? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So the European Space Agency actually put out figures uh, recently updated, January 8th, 2021, that states that the number of satellites that rocket launches have placed into Earth orbit so far is about 10,680. How many of those are still in space? 6,250. Only 3,900 of those are still functioning. 
So the estimated number of breakups, explosions, collisions, or anomalous events resulting in fragmentation is more than 560, and they project that the total mass of all space objects in Earth orbit is more than 9,200 tons. Oh, Jesus. To bring this back around, is Elon Musk's shitty red car still in space? Is that not one of the many things out there? It very well could be. I can't say I know that off the top of my head. I feel like that was a controversy where, yeah, because he left his fucking car out there and I think people were angry about it, understandably so. And also because he was breaking, like, international law by leaving it out there. I'm going to have to look this up later. I didn't hear anything about that. Hmm. But I don't really follow like Tesla and all that stuff very closely. So. I don't either. I've everything I found out, everything I learn about Elon Musk is against my will. Like <laughs> absorbed through osmosis. Yeah. Yeah. Goddamn cultural osmosis. So the guidelines don't explicitly say, "Hey, you can't leave that corpse here," but it does define space debris as all man-made objects including fragments and elements thereof in earth orbit or re-entering the atmosphere that are non-functional and i think it is safe to say that a corpse is of earth humans are probably the most man-made object yeah that we have uh and after death is largely non-functional yeah i think that uh that's a fair assessment of that law <laughs> right, would hold so- up in space court <laughs> Quick fun fact, because I was very curious and I just looked it up. Elon Musk's car is still in space and it's orbiting the sun. And it's got a fucking dummy in it. It's orbiting the sun? Yeah. It's not... I wish that Elon Musk was the dummy that was still in it, but here we are. Don't wish death upon people here, Christia. <laughs> I, I did not say that. I just said that I wish he wasn't on this planet anymore. There's a difference. <laughs> it's a fine line, but I'm gonna fucking tap dance on it, alright? <laughs> I mean, as far as Elon Musk and other SpaceX, XX, I guess, executives, perishing in space or having their bodies in space is not unlikely given how involved SpaceX is in space tourism Mm -hmm. and the future of space travel. Yeah, that's very true. So there are five main things that they are studying right now in regards to potential deep space missions, as it takes about six months to get to Mars. So astronauts traveling that distance are looking at at least a year in low to zero gravity. And I'm including this because these are ways that you may die in space that we don't have on the surface of Earth. So the Human Research Project at NASA has identified five spaceflight hazards in particular, which they turned into the acronym RIDGE. So we have radiation, isolation and confinement, distance, gravity fields, and environments that are closed or hostile. So this has to do with the complete removal of astronauts from any sort of help, right? Communication is very slow when you're that far from Earth. The space and galactic cosmic radiation that they are suffering because they do not have the shielding of an atmosphere. And also some of the radiation we just don't get on Earth. And we don't really know what that will do to the human body over time. Of course, the issues of isolation, which I think we're all experiencing a little of over 2020 and early 2021. And other projects. So there's lots of ways that astronauts could potentially die in the future and more likeliness almost that deaths will occur though nasa is extremely focused on death prevention in space and astronauts probably can handle just about anything thrown at them but what about a civilian how likely do you think they are to have any concept of what to do should death occur in a hyper isolated 
vessel. I mean... Such as? Such as a spaceship. Or a space hotel. Uh, ring room service and get them to deal with it. Call housekeeping. <laughs> Having this worked ironic- in a hotel, that is likely the most possible thing that's gonna happen. In my opinion. Say, I- yeah, ironically, this is- yeah, that's exactly what happens in hotels. They call somebody else to deal with it. Call someone of a lower social standing to deal with your problem. Mm. Ain't that some social commentary right there. It's capitalism I'm just, in space. I'm just envisioning like the crew from the Planet Express ship on Futurama being called instead of making a delivery, oh uh, taking stuff away. Amazing. I feel like that's probably an episode. That has to be an episode. It might have been, but you're not far off the mark, actually. So cruise ships are probably the most analogous to mm. what one of yeah, these totally. civilian spacecrafts is going to be like. And actually, the Voyager station that has been proposed by the Gateway Foundation, which is a Californian company, hopes to one day be the equivalent of taking a cruise or taking a trip to Disneyland. I don't know how they're going to make it that affordable, given current space tourism, which does exist, costs about $20 million US for a singular person at Hmm. the moment. But given that the Voyager station would like to be, you know, fancy hotel in space, kind of cruise ship-like, Cruise ships do have small morgues on board to house the deceased until they reach a port that is connected correctly to that person's home country so that the body can be transferred to an ME or medical examiner and repatriation can be organized by the family or the consulate or both. Of course, repatriation comes at cost to the family and the the cruise line will not help with that, (laughs) unfortunately. You You know how cruises are so affordable, right? So very, right? I feel like there's a there's an analog to be made there for the future of space tourism. Space cruises, you're going to recruit people who come from lesser uh, lesser economic power countries and underpay them, but they're just happy to have the opportunity, right? The opportunity to work and send money back to their to their families. You're not going to pay them very much, but they're going to be appreciative. At least that's the perspective of the uh, the operators. Very much like cruise yeah. ships. There's a lot of analogs there, you're right. Yeah, and the only analog that doesn't quite fit is the burial at sea, which, I mean, cruise ships don't do. But if they did, it would go better than chucking a body out an airlock. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So there is actually an active space tourism agency that has successfully spent, sent at least eight people to the International Space Station who are not astronauts. And it is a company called Space Adventures. It's been in operation since the 1980s, and they offer a whole range of experiences. Have you ever wanted to give your partner the moon? Now <laughs> sure, you why can. not? Now you can. I have no idea how much it costs, as this the website seems to have a little bit of a if-you-have-to-ask-you-can't-afford-it ex- policy. Mm. But you can take a circumlunar journey around the moon. Two civilians, one astronaut. They first take you to the ISS, where you spend 10 days acclimating to space. And then they launch from there and go around the moon. This is insane. I can't even make this stuff up. They also offer ground-based experiences such as zero-gravity flights in which they take a, I believe it's a Boeing 747 that has had all of its innards kind of ripped out. And the plane flies in parabolas, or big arches, to simulate zero-gravity within the cabin. Hmm. And that costs about $6,700 per person. It's actually 
Oh, wait, never mind. I was like, oh, if we're going to space, that's not that bad. And I was like, oh, wait, it's, right. just, not space. A fucking, <laughs> it's just a fucking Boeing 4747. It's not as exciting. Yeah. Unless yeah. you really cool love as- space, I guess, in that case. It's great, but... Yeah, momentary zero-G. Very cool. Is it worth $6,700? Yeah. Maybe not, considering that... Maybe from just about that amount, we can go to the Voyager station in the future. But I digress. So one of the advising astronauts on their advisory board, and there are eight astronauts on there, is actually Buzz Aldrin of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, as well as several other very accomplished astronauts. And it's on the rise. So space adventures have actually partnered with national space agencies, such as Roscosmos and NASA, uh, to help with research stuff. Training, transportation, because obviously you can't just willy-nilly send somebody to the ISS. I feel like that would cause a lot of flight pattern problems. They're also tied to SpaceX, which of course is Elon Musk's private space agency. And as we go forward, we're getting more into the hypotheticals of space. Uh, Popular Mechanics ran an article discussing how Roscosmos was wanting to add a high-comfort module, quote-unquote, to the International Space Station that is essentially a luxury hotel. The ISS can dock up to 20 ships, or 20 spacecrafts at any time, not including an extra potential module, but that's Roscosmos is the Russian space agency, so that would be a government-operated site of space tourism. The Voyager Station, of course, which is a cruise ship-style ship that seems to use science fiction logic in having a spinning wheel, spoken wheel-designed ship, Uh, that was partially designed by a German rocket scientist who had worked on the Nazi space program, Von Braun, which was the original name of the ship, but they did change it later on to avoid the Nazi associations. But they are hoping to simulate artificial gravity. All sorts of fun stuff. But as we get more and more civilians into space, I don't know very many civilians who are going to react calmly to any kind of death, no matter how calm, quiet, serene it may be, let alone a death in space. Because that will be the moment where they go, oh my god, what do I do about a dead body? And I don't know if this is going to be included in the price tag, the potential repatriation of a body, because I don't know how well that would do in a under the G-force of a traveling spaceship. But there is a relatively new technology called Promession that has been projected to be a viable option for outer space body disposal. Are either of you familiar what, with what Promession is? No, I've never heard of that. No. Which is fair enough, because there haven't been any humans subjected to Promession yet. So Promession is a body disposal method that comes from the Swedish company of Promessa, and it involves essentially flash-freezing the body by dipping it in liquid nitrogen and vibrating it at a very specific frequency in order to reduce it to very, very small bits. It produces about 50 pounds of organic matter, But unlike traditional cremation, which requires a huge amount of fuel, as well as it causes a lot of smoke, it reduces the body to a very brittle form of carbon that is very dusty and not good to inhale. Or aquamation, which requires a lot of water in order to cremate a body. It's billed as kind of being the right balance of not resource intensive, but also doesn't leave a body to decay. That is still organic matter, so you can't quite scatter it like ashes. So Uh, so just just to make sense of it uh you said it was liquid dipped in liquid nitrogen is that what you said yes okay so basically frozen yep and then shaken until you're just little ice shavings 
Yes. All right. Yeah. And then you thaw yeah, out so and you're just goo? That sounds disgusting. <laughs> Think more of when you get powdered strawberry or anything like that, where it's been flash frozen and essentially shattered into very small bits. It is stable at that point. It's been flash frozen, which, truth be told, I don't know the chemical difference between uh, flash freezing and slowly freezing, but it doesn't sound like the body parts melt necessarily or are stored in any sort of way that permits that to happen. But if you do, so like if you have a pack of frozen strawberries in your freezer and you take them out, let them thaw out in the fridge, they are a lot more uh, liquidy, watery, less, uh, they have less of their structural integrity than they did before they were frozen. So I think Christio's point was just that not that we're purposely letting these ice bodies, ice shavings melt, but if they did, <laughs> what are they going to look like, you know? I That's a good question, and I may be misunderstanding the degree to which they are separated apart. I don't know if they're turned quite into dust or smaller. They have done trials with pig carcasses, which seems to have gone fine, but of course, human testing is illegal. But I imagine it'll be a long time before any sort of promotion technology is brought onto a spaceship. As if they can prevent deaths, why have space dedicated to body disposal? Mm. I'm never eating frozen raspberries again. (laughs) (laughs) Raspberries do disintegrate. They do. Yeah, the the ice crystals destroy the fiber of things when things are frozen. Arnold! (laughs) Arnold! So, maybe the magic school bus wasn't that far off? Except for the fact that he lived. But of course, it yeah. was an episodic educational program for children. Wouldn't that be so much more scarring if Arnold actually died? It was not, I think that was the first episode of the series, technically. So Was it? <laughs> yeah. I think it was pretty early on. Oh, for sure. God, what a good show. And from show. what I understand, it was, a, it was a spiteful, spiteful action towards Janet. His cousin, yep. I, I remember that. Yeah. Not gonna lie, I did not rewatch that episode for this, but I don't think I need to. It's actually pretty clear into my brain. Yeah, the, like dun Forever. dun dun kind of energy of that moment. <sighs> so whether there'll ever be an option far, far in the future, because a lot of these space stations are hoping to be launched in the 2020s, in the 2030s. We're talking next 50 years, potentially knowing a guy who knows a guy who did space tourism. Right, the Voyager station wants to be fully operational by 2027, which sounds crazy to me. They're saying they've had some COVID-related delays. Haven't we'll we all? That <laughs> Haven't we indeed? But whether any of these ships are going to be outside of that 2,000-kilometer orbit area, in which case they are no longer bound by any of the UN's rules, who knows if they'll start chucking bodies out airlocks. Or if we start seeing some truly science fiction type ships, a la generation ships that you see in the Expanse, which are capable of agriculture, whether something like human compost or recomposition, as it's been called, could become an option in the very closed environment that would be a spaceship. Hmm. Wow. That's gross. So much. Yeah. Though on that note, actually, uh, there was a quote in an article that I read from one of NASA's senior bioethicists. Paul Wolpe, Wolpe, um, who very much doubts that human compost will ever be an option, 
because there's super strong taboos about instrumental use of dead bodies, though taboos, of course, are cultural, um, mm. as most Western cultures would find it extremely taboo to engage in mortuary cannibalism or to go and redress a corpse every year. But those are practices that exist around the world. And there are lots of people who would find it extremely strange to fill a body with chemicals and lock it in a box underground and hope that it stays fresh and pristine in its own soup. Right? But he also noted that it hasn't really been observed in any known human societies, no matter how desperate that society was for fertilizer. So who knows how things will change going into the future. I don't think we're going to hit the point of uh, human compost in the next 30 years, but maybe 100 years from now. For the sake of my hypothetical grandchildren, I fucking hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not into that. No. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. And so the reason the Soyuz rocket kept coming up, realizing I didn't say this earlier, is that the Soyuz rockets are now one of the most reliable carrier rockets used today in all space programs. Quite the turnaround. Right? Apparently it has one of the highest rates of non-fatal usages, which given the legacy of the Soyuz 1 and the Soyuz 11, vast improvements have clearly been made. Yeah. Was it Discovery that killed a whole bunch, like the entire crew, upon re-entering the atmosphere? Like it just blew apart? Is it Discovery? I think it was Discovery. I think there have been a few few that have exploded um i think the challenger was one challenger leaving yeah leaving the atmosphere i think that's Um, what i'm thinking of sounds about right yeah i'm not super well versed in my uh astronaut and space history unfortunately i'm only interested in space if it's fictional otherwise i want nothing to do with it (laughs) honestly i'm kind of right in between there where i'm very interested in sci-fi and i don't know a lot about the various space goings on um but like I said, a lot of most of the astronaut deaths that have occurred since the start of the space age have been due to like mechanical failures, either leaving the atmosphere, getting off the launch pad, or re-entering. Uh, and unfortunately, these are tragic accidents that usually are televised and I imagine quite hard to retrieve remains from. Yeah, generally because there's nothing left. Yeah, believe it or not, they actually did find Komarov's remains. The cosmonaut who crashed into earth at 30 to 40 miles meters per second um however they described it as being an irregular lump that was 30 centimeters in diameter and 80 centimeters long oh gross wow it's frozen or he was a bag of thawed strawberries there you go yeah i don't think he was i think he'd been too heated for that given the speed at which he guess so yeah collided with the earth i find it interesting that there have been so many parallels between space and burial at sea or just the sea in general and it's making me think about where we are now in venturing out into space space tourism and all that that you were you were talking about mariah is reflected a little bit in the past in our venturing out onto the sea sea is still very dangerous and granted there are places in, in the ocean like the deep deep ocean that we haven't had a chance to uh to get to yet due to pressure problems there's quite a parallel there um between what if one day there's deep sea tourism and are we going to have the same problems or are you just going to eject a dead body so that the fish can get it i wonder if there's going to be like an outer space version of the franklin expedition where everyone just like essentially goes crazy and eats each other 
oh yeah, I believe there was a problem with lead poisoning due to the poor soldering and all the cans that yeah. they had sealed all their food in. Oh well, yeah, but because they got we're... they got like frozen. They essentially froze in place, and then they were slowly dying. Their immune systems were being further galvanized by the fact that they were eating lead. And then all of the food was also soiled. So not only was the food um, like soiled, but then it was also sealed with lead. So they were, yeah, they were. And then when the Inuit people were like, hey, do you guys want help? Here's a seal. They like ignored them. But 19th century yeah. white men in a foreign place. I guess that's bound to happen. <laughs> well, it's I, I think there's yeah an important parallel to draw across both of those things, because, of course, there's going to have to be first manned trips, you know, attempting to go to Mars or attempting to leave the solar system eventually, uh, really crossing into sci-fi territory. But also when we look at the way that sea travel has changed, right, we've made it safer, quote unquote, but the sea has never changed. The mm -hmm, sea has mm -hmm. never become less dangerous and the people who work on it all the time know that yes. and have to be prepared right when are we going to have our space titanic yeah exactly it's fun to well i know i'm gonna say it it is fun to draw those historical comparisons like what are we going to have space franklin expedition when are we going to have uh space titanic or all of these space other titanic drama covered that too there we go <laughs> And That's it's awful because it just kind of goes to show that as humans, um, I think Mark Twain said it, he's like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And it yeah. just, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. The last frontier space, question mark? Space. <laughs> the final frontier. Where no one has gone before. Or to, exp right. to explore. No, I've been watching this show all week and I can't recite it. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> well, here's hoping we don't have a space Essex, because that would imply that there are uh, space whales or some or other form of angry space inhabitant that smashes the ship in two and leaves everybody to commit cannibalism in order to stay alive. Yeah. But that might let's be... Not, let's avoid that if we can. I feel like yeah, space cannibalism is inevitable. I feel like that's something that if you're an astronaut, you kind of have to, well, if I was going to be an astronaut and I was also like a historian, I would kind of prepare myself to the fact that I might have to eat one of my coworkers. I feel like that's a good thing for an astronaut to prepare themselves for, but that's just me. <laughs> I feel like if, if there's a chance that, you know, if you're in a situation where it seems like there's no, there's no way out, it's really hard to say like what you would do, but I feel like for me, if it was in that situation, it would be, well, if there's no way out, neither of us are getting out of here. I don't, I don't know what I would do. I don't, I would like to think that I wouldn't resort to that, but who can say for sure. All right. Yeah, you Jane, would be left in your lunch. and Armstrong's. <laughs> <laughs> say what? Nothing. Nothing, nothing. I, she's definitely not planning to eat you in a, in a do or die or slash or stranded in space. Okay. Uh, if you Do ever invite her on a on a trip to the moon, I will decline. Uh, well, I was going to say, interestingly enough, one of the concerns with Prometheus that the founder talks about is that you can't spread freeze dried remains the same way because, say, if you dispose of the remains at sea, the fish will eat them, and then people won't want to eat fish because there's a chance it's eaten people. Hmm. I mean, fish already have a chance of eating people. Yeah, they do. Just probably not in in public 
view. I don't think people realize how many people fish potentially eat. This is a long way from space, but... <laughs> well, again, going we've back wandered, to whole... We've wandered off topic a little bit here, but uh, interesting <laughs> Cannibalism in space, guys. I think, is every episode going to come to cannibalism? I don't think mine is going to be. The last episode didn't. Like, Kirkens didn't. I thought it was going to go to cannibalism, and we talk about drinking blood. And I pose the question, is drinking blood cannibalism? Which I still am on the fence about, to be fair. I think it is. I think there has to be a lot of it consumed before it counts as cannibalism. Yeah. But who knows? Um, That's for somebody, that's for a philosopher to figure out. I don't care. (laughs) I'm just not gonna do it. (laughs) Yep. Do either of you think that given the opportunity, you would partake in some space tourism? Once I've seen, like, hundreds of other... Once I've seen, like, the same number of crowds that go to Disneyland every year go, I would consider it. I don't think I would. Uh, not in my. I don't think it's going to be safe enough in my lifetime. I am very risk averse, though, when it comes to uh, <laughs> putting myself in situations that could be harmful. I would seriously con- think about and consider very carefully if someone invited me to go skydiving. So that tells you a little bit about me and my priorities. <laughs> so I don't think <laughs> I don't think it would be a situation where I would go uh, tourism in space. I'm very easily influenced. So like if I saw some like somebody did like a travel vlog or something of like my time in space, come with me for the next 20 minutes as we go through my cabin, like I would probably. But then again, if some shitty YouTuber is doing a vlog about it, it's probably (laughs) fine. So there's always the risk of being on that space Titanic, though. This is this is true. But there is also the risk of being on. We all are. Two of us live on an island, so, I mean, there's also the risk of every time we leave the island that Titanic 2 happens. Yeah, and I think that's an (laughs) interesting... Well, you know how to swim, right? Can't swim in space. I'm not gonna swim in the ocean. But also, could you swim the distance required to get to a shoreline? Absolutely not. Maybe. Then you're a stronger swimmer than we are. Just make sure you take your shoes off. (laughs) So that was talking about dying in space and the potential contingencies that may eventually be in place versus the contingencies that were and weren't in place historically. Adventure is out there, as is space tourism, space debris, and potentially space death. And also Elon Musk's car. Also Elon Musk's car. So, you know, next time you're traveling, just remember, have contingencies. No matter where you go. Death is always a possibility, as we're all mortal. We'll see you next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.